This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. California just became the first state to allow college athletes to hire agents and earn money from endorsement deals. Governor Gavin Newsom, who, by the way, is a former college baseball player, signed State Bill 206 into law during an online-only episode of HBO's The Shop, hosted by LeBron James. Though taped on Friday, the show aired yesterday. The new law will give student-athletes the right to be compensated for the use of their name, image, or likeness starting in 2023. The issue has been widely debated for many years because of the revenue windfall universities have from their college sports teams mainly football and basketball. The NCAA responded with a statement saying if other states pass their own laws on this, quote, it will make unattainable the goal of providing a fair and level playing field for 1,100 campuses and nearly half a million student-athletes nationwide, end quote. Joining me here in studio to discuss this is Ellen Storowski, who's a professor of sports management at Drexel University and program director of the school's athletic administration concentration. She's also a senior writer for Sports Litigation Alert and Legal Issues in Collegiate Athletics. And also joining us, Charles Grantham, director of the Center for Sport Management at Seton Hall University's Stillman School of Business and a longtime representative and advisor for NBA players. Ellen, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you, Charles. Great to have you back with us. Uh, it's good to be here. Give us your reaction, Alan, to this. This is a uh, this is a big move for college athletics, and I should note you were actually one of the expert witnesses in the Ed O'Bannon case many years ago. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I think this is um, a long time coming and long overdue. Um, I think um, you know this bill um, um, provides a legal right for athletes to um, have. Um, uh, have the ability to profit off of their names, images, and likenesses. And this is a right that has been denied to them because of NCAA regulations. So um, so I think this restores something to them that has been denied for far too long. Charles, your thoughts? Well, uh, <clears throat> in 1990, I wrote an article for the New York Times saying it was time to give the athletes a share. And that was shortly after we created this revenue-sharing concept in professional sports called a salary cap. And, yeah. and I said then that, guess what, guys? College kids deserve a share as well. They have no representation. Um, and it's about time. Um, just hopeful that uh, 10, 15, or 20 other states will join, and therefore we can have this collision that is uh, long overdue. So do we know, Charles, and, and I guess maybe this is something that will play out in the next couple of years, how this will be run and how this will be administered going forward? Well, I think I don't know that you're going to get it. Well, let's, right now you're dealing with the why question. The how question is later to come. And I, right. we're really at the early stages of a negotiation between the NCAA and the various states who decide to uh, enter this fray here. Alan? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And um, Mr. Grantham, it's such an honor to be on the program with you. Um, you've led the way in terms of fair treatment for athletes and for them having an appropriate um, uh, share of um, revenues. And um, so it, it's really a particular honor to be talking about this with you today. Well, thank you so much. Um, you're welcome. Um, I've long looked forward to the day to, of meeting you, um, so it's nice to do so on air. Um, well, but we're going to make that happen this year. Lovely. Um, to get to to get to your question about um, uh, about how we go forward with this, yeah. um, 
I, I think that um, we really, I, I think we have a situation where we have a college sport industry that is operating in a mindset um, that, uh, that that wasn't even fitting in, in the late 1800s. I mean, athletes had the opportunity to um, have endorsement deals in the 1800s, right. and, and they didn't have that opportunity today. Um, and really what I think we're grappling with um, is um, creating a 21st century model that um, is a, an, an appropriate business model that recognizes the tremendous value that athletes bring to the table. Um, and so this this gesture, this statement on the part of California is incredibly important because the college sport industry will not willingly do this on its own. So do we expect that, that these opportunities are going to come I would guess for the most part at the local level, like a, a student at, at UC, USC or UCLA or you know some other school uh, will be able to be approached to be the sponsor of a car dealership or a restaurant or something like that. Do you expect that's going to how it's going to play out? Well, let me <clears throat> let me take a brief stab at that. Okay, um, if the NCAA were smart. And if they were uh, reasonable people, they would respond with modifying the rules and regulations governing amateurism. And they would be less restrictive and work with the states to solve the problem before 23 comes. Because in 23, if it's uh, as, as it is right now, it would be chaos between agents, between, as you say, local advertisers wanting to, to, to compensate the student-athletes, it would be chaos. Um, and if they are the management types that they claim to be and the innovators that they claim to be, then, you know, they would look to their professional brethren because we've been doing this for years. It's yeah. called revenue sharing, and it's called a group license. Mm -hmm. And it's given, uh, you know, these young people a chance to uh, – <clears throat> as they are the most viable asset in the program <laughs> to get a return on their investment, uh, on their unique talent. So, you know, th th this is, this is an argument that's long overdue, as we say, uh, how it's going to work out yet to be played is going to have some scuffle first, but the bottom line here is going to be that if the States apply the kind of pressure that both of us think they will, mm -hmm. then the NCA will come to conclude that they're, there is a reasonable way to resolve this without, let's say, tainting or harming their, quote, uh, amateur business model. Look, $14 billion being generated in revenue should suggest it's time to, to eliminate your hard salary cap of room, board, books, tuition, and cost of attendance. Alan, your thoughts? Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. And, um, you know, um, at, at some point during the O'Bannon trial, um, Judge Wilkin um, made the comment that amateurism is not helpful here. Um, and um, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I think there's been a mythology around amateurism. I think athletes 
Um, you know, clearly the NCAA already has a compensation scheme in place. Yeah. That's what the athletic scholarship is. This pretends that somehow that they're opposed to paying athletes is simply patently not true. Right. Um, they they do have some some mechanism of compensation. It's just that they want to suppress the value of that to um, effectively zero, um, and um, and then and then benefit from the profits. And um, it, you know the the gap just continues to get larger and larger between um, between the entities that benefit from that. And it isn't just colleges and universities, but if we look at the gambling domain right now, which is just exploding, right. um, that gap is going to increase. And you know we have corporations all over America that have a piece of this. So um, in terms of um, economic fairness, um, the the affront is astounding. And if the NCAA is really committed, as they say that they are, to protecting the interests of the athletes who compete in their system, only 2% of go, who go on um, to professional sport, uh-huh. this mechanism actually does protect the 98% that they're always talking about because the 98% have value value that has been unrecognized for decades, and they're in their prime earning um, time when they're in college. Um, And no one has even quantified the the magnitude of the denial of their value. Um, And so this actually recognizes that and and remedies that problem. Charles? No, I'm a a firm believer that the, the model is already there. Because when you think about what the various power five conferences do. You think about the professionals they hire to run their programs, Mm -hmm. run their franchises. They're no different than the Philadelphia Eagles or the 76ers or the Phillies. They're run the same way. Their sources of revenue are the same. The only partner that's lacking is the student athlete. He has no representation at the bargaining table. The the athletic directors listen if you can pay if you can pay a coach 94 million dollars over 10 years yeah. i think your business is doing pretty well well the other piece to it right now charles is also in terms of athlete empowerment is the fact that we are starting to see more and more athletes transfer in that quote unquote grad year so that they can have one more year of playing and and obviously we we're starting to see that more and more pop up i think in football Uh, And probably we'll see it more and more in basketball in years to come. Well, they've figured out how they can best utilize the system to their advantage. It still does not grant them this this question of value and the issue of compensating them for the use of that unique talent. I mean, we we keep missing, missing the ball here, that the most important part, the most important asset here, is the athlete, and they have shown over time a total disrespect for the uniqueness of that talent. If less than half of 1% actually will end up on a roster next year, some type of, and Judge Wilkin pointed this out, some type of trust fund that would uh, uh, allow them to have a trust that they perhaps couldn't access till they graduated. Right. That would be an incentive for many of the young people that we see today leaving school to chase a dream that's not possible. That would give them incentive to stay, not leave. Alan? So that's, a, that's, a, that's just a small uh, compromise that uh, 
has been out there for years that Judge Wilkin reaffirmed, but they've ignored. Um, you know, along with that, along along with um, uh, the issue of just player migration and, and where they're going to get the work um, that's going to best suit their interests, I think we have a more fundamental issue here, and that issue is this um, logic that, um, you know, within the framing of the way that we talk about college sport, um, uh, athletes are referred to as quote-unquote kids. Right. Um, yeah. And, um, and un, you, know, you know, listeners, you know, in my view, um, that is an intentional framing. Um, you know, these are not um, kids. These are young people of military age, um, who um, are early in their careers, yeah. um, and that and and um, but but this whole discussion about whether or not they should have money or whether or not they what they will do when they get money, um, this is very disturbing. It should be disturbing to anyone um, right. because um, seventy-five to eighty percent of all college students work for a wage. They receive some kind of paycheck. Yeah. Um, there's no one on the landscape that is criticizing them for having done so. But within college sport, it's a manipulation to sort of infanticize them and to um, and to somehow create this level of distress that they can't be trusted. And um, uh, the agent, um, Rich Paul, was talking um, uh, about um, that it would actually benefit the athletes to um, have the experience of, uh, of working these deals and understanding them um, at a younger age, because by the time they get into um, a major professional league, they, they've been they've been so um, repressed in terms yeah. of their development yeah. um, that 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 they have a lot of issues. Um, and um, so for a variety of reasons, I think we need to really reexamine the ways that we talk about this. Well, I think it's interesting in, in the fact that you just bring up the, the dynamic that's going on in some college campuses right now and in many college campuses is that on the athletic side, we may refer to them to as kids. But when you look at the educational side, we're referring to all of our students as adults as that first step out into the corporate world. So even within the universities themselves, there there is this this uh, difference in, in thought process mm -hmm. going on, Ellen. Yeah. Yeah. And it completely flies in the face of the NCAA's assertion that college athletes are like all other students. Um, college athletes are not like all other students, um, and they should have um, the opportunities to um, to navigate the landscape that they are in um, in a way that best benefits them. What does this, uh, Charles, what does this really mean for the NCAA moving forward? You know, that organization is one, one that has been criticized quite a bit in the last decade, decade and a half on a variety of different levels. What do you, what do you think this type of decision, and especially if we see a variety of states uh, jump on board with similar legislation to California, what does it mean for the NCAA? Well, it means change. I mean, let's be realistic here. Um, <clears throat> we have to move into the 21st century. I mean, we, we have to start thinking about management controls that make sense. Um, we don't want to continue this. They, they don't get this, this, this uh, name. Uh, you know, they don't talk about the NCAA as a plantation for nothing. There's a rationale and a reason behind that. Mm -hmm. is because they treat these young people as chattel. And that's got to change. As she mentioned, uh, kids. Well, the athletes are kids. 
but the students in 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 the business school are young adults um it's a play on words but at the same time it 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 only demonstrates the sense of entitlement that let's say the administration and uh athletic directors and others have of controlling uh, controlling these young people um and 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 the intimidation you know at some point here as i've always said if LeBron James and other professional athletes, maybe it's a federation of professional athletes, continue to support these young people, um, if in fact they would ever consider boycotting the Final Four, both in football and basketball, this entire problem would be over and solved in about a week and a half. Yeah. Ellen, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, but. Obviously, I'm pro-labor, as you can tell by my comments, yes, yeah. um, uh, and and I would agree with that fully. Um, I, I think that, um, um, uh, Mr. Grantham, I was so interested in what you just said about um, about the professional athletes supporting college athletes in this effort. I think that would be a tremendous step in the right direction to continue down this path um, of really formalizing that kind of support. Um, and, and maybe even going a step further and getting that kind of support from um, formally from players associations. Oh, um, Ellen, I, I've advocated it's time for the unions to get off the sidelines. Yeah, they should be organizing. Not the not the United Steel Steel Workers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it should have been the various players associations. Okay, yeah. because they do have the they have the cachet to get this thing moving in the direction that would better serve the entire collective. Charles, then, do, do you see this moving forward as something that we are going to see more and more states get involved with? Or does the NCAA, now that this bill has been passed in the state of California, does the NCAA need to try and get ahead of this and, and work something out with all of the, all of the universities that are, that are under its purview? Here's what I think. All right. I think this is typical NCAA behavior. They have been favored in the courts for so long that they expect that they will get the same. Uh, they will await the lawsuits. They will challenge them. I think last year, Ellen, you may be able to give me a better number here, but between the O'Bannon case and the Jenkins case, okay, uh, the lawyers made money, mm-hmm. uh, almost $90 million, close to $100 million that the NCAA had to pay uh, for for the plaintiffs' lawyers, now forget about what they paid to defend their position. Um, so they're expecting that the appeals courts will continue to favor this thing called amateurism, and we will refuse to draw that line between amateur and professional. Uh, that that's what they anticipate. So I expect a, a sort of a drawn out legal battle before we actually get to the point of change. Yeah. And, you know, what interests me about that is, and and I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we can, you know, we can go back decade after decade after decade, and the language is always the same, and and the reaction is always the same. You know, that the sky is falling, that, you know, uh, the NCAA issued a comment yesterday that, that there was already, you know, confusion across the land. 
Um, and, um, you know, but, but that's a very old reaction that they have. And, um, you know, what does worry me a bit is, um, you know, in, in the lead up to the signing on Friday, um, the um, FBS athletic directors earlier that week were on Capitol Hill um, lobbying um, members mm-hmm. of Congress. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, the NCAA has had a playbook relative to what happened in California on Friday, um, has had that playbook, uh, you know, for months now. Yep. Um, and um, and so, um, I, you know, it concerns me because there are so many ways that they potentially could shut this down. But I think... Um, um, I, I think the 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 question then becomes, um, you know, what is the financial investment for them to do this? Because, um, uh, you know, they they are just fighting so many battles on so many fronts and spending so many millions and millions of dollars um, that that frankly could be going to the athletes if they simply adjusted course. Um, and um, and and ultimately, bottom line is the the right thing to do. Um, you know, fundamentally, this isn't about recruiting advantage. This right. is fundamentally about about human decency. Right. It's about human dignity, and it's about economic fairness. Um, and it's as basic as that. What will it mean? Go ahead, Charles. No, I was just going to say the question that still arises, we, we talk about quite a bit, and certainly in my class, I'm sure yours do, uh, that ethics, you know, we're looking at an ethical question here yeah. at some point. Yep. And um, we as adults uh, that play in that NCAA realm, uh, I know a lot of them, and, and quite frankly, they are also represented by the same law firms that I used to fight for years, and that's Proskauer Rose in New York and Skadden. So it's not that they're not aware of these uh, solutions. They are, mm-hmm. except that right now it seems like the lawyers are driving this thing. And all I can hope for is that we get more and more and more states we get 25, 30 states running, 10, 15, certainly better than what we have. And all of a sudden, that may create that mass confusion that's going to create this kind of dialogue between the, two, the parties. Charles, yeah. you, me- you mentioned about the fact that, that, that the pro sports leagues have kind of laid out the, the, the dynamic that maybe we should look for in, in college athletics moving forward with this topic. Then how much should the leagues themselves maybe give their two cents along the way in this too, having having done this, having been part of this for, for such a long period of time and work with the NCA to develop the a, a model that really fits well, so the, numerous the model, colleges. Yeah, the model that fits is revenue sharing. They have, they've yeah. prospered in that model. The only partner missing are the athletes. Right? Yeah. They share it among the conferences, uh, among the universities, uh, so forth and so on. It's just that one partner is not uh, a part of this 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 thing, and the fact that uh, Skadden and Proskauer are there means that the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, especially, True. are there too because they help uh, build those models, and, and of course, uh, they've given it the the legal structure that all of them have. But would this also, Ellen, change the dynamics of, uh, of what these sponsorships end up being? Thinking back a couple of years when the O'Bannon case came around, then all of a sudden the video game companies stopped doing NCAA games because they were worried about about this issue. Do we potentially now kind of see this reversed? And see the video game companies and others start to say, well, now that this is legal, let's just go ahead and do it. 
Um, well, yeah, I, th- I think that that does that that is potentially what what is going to happen, right? Um, but I think um, you know fundamentally, before we get there, I think we really need to look at the. Um, the missing piece in all of this. And the missing piece, and and the way to get there is, number one, to acknowledge the fact that athletes are not members of the NCAA. The NCAA does not represent athletes. They represent institutions um, and institutional interests. And this is the reason why we're in the problem that we're in. And, And then along with that, what we need is we need a players association for college athletes or we need entities like the NFLPA, the MBPA that will rep- and, and the WNPA, NBA PA right. to represent the interests of athletes um, at the college level. We need some kind of structure like that to level the playing field um, in terms of these negotiations. And then from there, then we get to collective bargaining. And that was that somewhat the basis of what we I think it was was a year, maybe two years ago, that was kind of percolating at Northwestern University. That was the idea originally, correct? Sure. Well, hey, listen, if there's anything that came out of that negotiation, right, it was the Chicago board of the NLRB that defined those student-athletes as employees. What is your, Charles, what is your expectation that, that, I mean, obviously 2023 is, is kind of the time frame that the state of California is looking at, but will we see... Uh, more and more activity on this sooner than 2023. Obviously, you've got more work to do to kind of lay out the framework and, and how this will go forward. Well, the strategies I suggested earlier that the NCA will take is sort of a very slow-moving one. I mean, they'll see what the outcome of this committee will come up with, but they're going to move pretty slowly um, and try to de- defer, delay, uh, perhaps even a lawsuit uh, here and there yeah. to uh, get this in a litigation uh, territory here, um, so I don't. I just see a lot of a lot of activity over this next six eight months and a lot of talking. Uh, very little progress. I just I doubt very seriously if October comes around, they get a report from their committee and then all of a sudden they announce that they're going to give a share to these student athletes. Yeah, I I think most of us are not expecting a whole lot coming out from the NCAA's working group on this in the next couple of weeks. But what where where I do see um, um, uh, activity, um, for example, um, you've got. Um, uh, in uh, the state of South Carolina, um, you've got um, you've got a bill there um, which um, is going to be proposed, which is similar to that in California. Mm-hmm. You've got a bill right now in um, New York State, um, which actually takes it a step further. Um, so um, I, I think where the where where an important piece of this is going to come in is whether or not public pressure. Um, and legislative pressure can be brought to bear. And then there's um, um, uh, Senator Chris Murphy um, uh, in the U.S. Senate um, that has also been looking into these things. So um, so I think that there are legislators who have taken these issues very seriously, um, and hopefully um, we may have more pressure coming externally. Right. Um, yeah. But that's the great pity of this, is that we have this multi-billion dollar industry that will not willingly... Um, do this on their own. Charles? No, I was, my, my thought would be that um, where the legislators need help, we're talking about the why, uh, and the how has to be further defined, meaning that 
since the players have no one working on their interests, it turns out now that the states are representing the interests of the student-athlete. So I think it's going to have to come from them to further define what that share looks like. You know, I push the concept of a, a trust fund. Someone is going to have to push that right. from the stand to get them to budge a little bit on because right now it's too big and it's too much space and it's a, it's a, it allows the NCA as an institution to continue to maneuver. But the, at some point, a state like New York said 15 percent. Right. Well, maybe someone else comes up and says 20 percent uh, and, and creates that kind of conflict but yet and still someone says not only 20% but we think it should be a trust fund and that these individuals should have access to that trust fund perhaps not till they graduate but this is a again uh, you know you follow my thinking with young people understanding what a trust fund is that all athletes would use this as a as an educational tool it gives right. It gives the various athletic programs something to work with these young people on. Final I, final note, Charles, because I, I think a lot of people also listening to us w- would say, okay, that may be fine for the athletes that are involved in football and basketball, which are the, the big revenue-generating sports. But we, do, we have to look at this throughout the landscape of, of college athletics for every team, for every player that is playing a, 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 a college sport. And then I think the question also becomes is because you have differing levels of support, Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. I played Division Three soccer. I got no opportunity to get college scholarship at, at that point, whereas Division One players do. Well, first of all, we have to knock the door down. And the way the door gets uh, interrupted here is through the – Revenue sharing. This is all about content. Yeah. All right. So yep. we have to. We True. Have to, yeah. You know, the the only other thing that I would add to that is that there is a larger women's market than what um, people envision. Yeah. Um, yes. Now, and we are talking about college sport, and I mean, I mean, the revenue drivers um, are institutionally embedded in the NCAA constitution. Yeah. Um, you know, it specifically says that Division One programs are sp- going to sponsor football and basketball. Yeah. So there's a reason why we're focusing on that. Yeah. Um, but I, but, um, but I, I think that if if we if we begin to break things down, I think it benefits many other athletes, including women athletes who oftentimes are not not discussed as part of this overall conversation. Yeah. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Ellen. Nice meeting you. Thank nice you for coming you. in. Charles, as always, great to talk to you. We will uh, catch up again. Very good. Thank Ellen, you. I'll be in touch. Wonderful. All right. yeah, Ellen Starosky at uh, Drexel University, Charles Grantham at uh, Seton Hall University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.